Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the WannaCry ransomware podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 17th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host and future special prosecutor, Frank Pasquale, a law professor from the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, this week on Twill, Frank, another great treat as we welcome back one of our good buddies, Nathan Cortez. Uh, Nathan is a Gerald J. Ford Research Fellow and the inaugural Adelpha Botello Calheo Endowed Professor of Law in Leadership and Latino Studies at Southern Methodist University at Denman School of Law. He teaches and writes in the areas of health law, administrative law, and FDA law. His research focuses on emerging markets in healthcare and biotech, mobile health technologies, and big data analytics, uh, regulating innovation, uh, immigration, federalism, and alternative modes of regulation. Nathan, I had to look up when you were last on the show, although, uh, believe me, your work comes up often, and we, we cite you in our show notes, and it was episode 10, which we released in April 2015. Wow. So that's 87 shows ago. So a massively welcome return, and great to have you back. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm uh, really flattered that I was one of the first 10 guests on Twill. Um, I can say I knew you guys when you were just starting out here. Uh, and before you became uh, pod rock stars. Well, of course, when the secret history of Twill is written, probably my retirement project, an alternate narrative might well be that we we just invited people that we didn't think would really anyone would really care about because we were only going to do 10 shows anyway. <laughs> no, I think actually, and my uh, grandiose Walter Mitty uh, alternative narrative will be that the Twill number will ultimately become the health law and policy equivalent of the Erdos number in math theory. So we will... <laughs> <laughs> we will see. <laughs> it's actually a, a, a timely um, thing to say, given that our 100th show is coming up, Frank, that uh, those folks like Nathan and Nikki Huberfeld, who came on those early shows, had to put up with some pretty awful technology and uh, amateurish behavior, <laughs> certainly by me, and uh, were really generous with their time to support a, a, a very new endeavor. Absolutely, yes. Well, we're going to spend quite a lot of time today talking about the American Healthcare Act, the AHCA, and maybe a little uh, a little background to start us off. And uh, it's complicated, as someone said recently. So either of you, please jump in uh, when I make some horrible error in the narrative that follows. First of all, dear listener, just in case you do not hear these pods when they're first published, uh, you'll need a little timeline as context. As I noted uh, at the top of the show, we're recording this on May 17th. It was on May the 4th that the House of Representatives passed the American Health Care Act. And as I recall, we don't expect the revised CBO scoring in it, on it, I think, until May 20th. Because that's a task that's even more complicated than usual, because the scorers have to estimate, amongst other things, the number of states that might ask for waivers of some of the ACA provisions. So the bill that was passed by the House was the original AHCA, plus some managers' amendments, that was the bill that was not presented for a vote. Then when it comes back, zombie-like, added to the HCA and those managers' amendments were the MacArthur amendments, allowing for state waivers for essential uh, health benefits, different types of age rating or age banding, as it's sometimes called, and also waivers of community rating. And then the final amendment was the Upton Amendment, which uh, added some uh, additional money for upsized high-risk pools. 
So after that passes, uh, I don't know whether the two of you will agree, but it strikes me that the key parts of what is, let's face it, a historically unpopular piece of legislation seem to be the following. First of all, there's an attack on LBJ care. Uh, it phases out Medicaid expansion and changes Medicaid to block grant or per capita caps. And as a result, also therefore got to cut the ACA taxes that paid for the expansion. And for those of you who think Medicare was saved, there's a whole emerging narrative about what happens to Medicare, Medicaid dual eligibles if uh, that Medicaid program continues. There's a great uh, Commonwealth brief on this today if you want to pick up on that, but all sorts of questions about, well, if, if uh, the dual eligibles, behavioral health, nursing home, community gates, services, etc., go up, go away, then they're going to end up in hospital stressing Medicaid. As I say, a whole different story. The second sort of major uh, moving piece here is it replaces the mandate, the individual mandate, with sort of a mandate light. It removes the individual mandate, but penalizes those who don't maintain uh, continuous coverage. Third, it creates a high-risk pool fund for states to provide insurance subsidies for those with pre-existing conditions. Why would they need that, you say? Because if the Act protects those with pre-existing conditions, such a pool fund would not be needed. Ah, but... Uh, by sleight of hand, if we allow states to waver out on and uh, return to medical underwriting, a particularly obnoxious sleight of hand, that one, then the pre-existing condition essentially becomes illusory. Fourth, it substitutes the ACA subsidies based on federal poverty level with age-based subsidies. Uh, it also repeals cost-sharing subsidies. Another sleight of hand because even low-cost insurance is pretty useless if it has a very, very low actuary value and you don't have cost-sharing subsidies. Fifth, because of the MacArthur Amendment, it creates a really fluid, potentially state-by-state -state system with different age bandings, community rating models, and essential health benefits in different states. One scenario, I suppose, is we could have really skinny plans that add low EHBs to very low actuarial value. Another scenario is that these provisions, plus the lack of insurer interest, will simply kill the individual market stone dead. Another scenario, if, if your glass is half full today, Frank or Nathan, is that all this innovation and waivers might create many, many Hawaii's or the almost Vermont's or some of the directions that maybe California is, is going uh, towards. So that's how I see the thing that came out of the House. I think that's a really nice summary of what the AHCA did. Um, and one important point that didn't receive a lot of attention when the ACA passed, uh, and something that might be tied to the ACA in the new healthcare bill, is the delegation of responsibility to states and to HHS. Uh, so I remember a really good Atul Gawande piece after the ACA talking about all the experiments and pilot programs and demonstration projects in the ACA and connecting it to early agricultural bills 100 years ago, in which policymakers uh, tried embedding in these new bills uh, basically policy experiments to see what would work. And there is very much the experimentalist uh, idea throughout the ACA with Medicare value-based payment reforms and uh, delivery reforms.
forms especially. What you're seeing here, I think, is less in the spirit of let's try to see what, what works and allow states to conduct almost these natural experiments with different approaches and more of a punting of responsibility. Um, so you see a lot of state waiver programs that are meant to give states, particularly Republican states, uh, the ability to opt out of unpopular or what they see as, as unpopular provisions in the ACA or provisions that at least House Republican members would like to get rid of. So there's, there's a different kind of experimentalism happening here. I think uh, in the ACA, you had a lot of policy experimentalism uh, providing waivers and demonstration projects and pilot pilot projects and the like, trying to see what works to maybe initiate real payment and delivery reform. Uh, but here, what you're seeing, I think, are the Republicans kicking the can down the road, trying to allow states to opt out of several things that they can't get rid of for procedural reasons and perhaps budget reconciliation reasons. So I think you see the same kind of tentative nature in both bills, but for very different reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of the overall structure of the uh, approach here. I'm wondering also, in terms of just getting into the legislative dynamics and a bit of the nitty-gritty here, one of the backstops for the ACA, at least in pundits' conversations, has been the filibuster and the idea that Democrats in the Senate would stop anything. This falls outside of the purview of the uh, Byrd rule with respect to budget-impacting aspects of changes to the law, right? Although even that narrative is changing slightly because apparently Tim Kaine and some other Democrats have their own little group that's negotiating some sort of Senate bill. But let's assume for now that the Democrats, or at least um, 41 of them, can hold together uh, to resist the AHCA and the Senate or something like it. The question then becomes, you know, how far can the GOP changes to Obamacare and the federal health legislation go? And it's particularly, by the way, uh, pressing, I think, for those of us in employer-sponsored plans, uh, because there there are aspects of the House bill that apparently are even going after lifetime limits or going after essential health benefits with respect to employer-based plans. And one thing I'm wondering about here is your opinion, Nathan, with respect to how far can the legislation go, say, in the employer-sponsored market or in other areas before it starts running into the strictures of the bird rule and going beyond what can be done uh, under reconciliation? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, and I think it's worth spending a few minutes on. So when you look at the AHCA as a whole, it's really oriented at changing insurance rules in states. And it, it's really aimed at insurance markets. And so I think there's a really good argument that these provisions don't directly affect revenues or outlays in the spirit of the Bird Rule. So for example, you know, allowing states to seek waivers to comply with essential health benefits requirements, that arguably, uh, well, I think pretty clearly doesn't affect revenues or outlays directly. It's not germane or it's merely incidental to the budget as required by the Byrd Rule. Um, you know, health savings accounts, perhaps, uh, health status underwriting provisions regarding pre-existing conditions, exclusions, and continuous coverage requirements, you know, the state high risk pools. There are a number of these features in the AHCA that seem to be extraneous. They seem to be focused 
on uh, state markets and private insurance, and, and they don't seem to be directly related to, uh, to the federal budget, federal spending or, or taxing. So again, you know, in, in looking at the bird rule a little more closely, I teach it in my legislation course. Um, a lot of people don't realize that it's actually codified in the U.S. code. You have, you know, sections 631 to 645A of Title II of the U.S. code that creates pretty detailed procedures for budget reconciliation. So this isn't some arcane uh, Senate rule. You know, the filibusters in Senate Rule 22, this is actually in the U.S. Code. And so uh, one, one, you know, it, it might be worth talking for a few minutes about how this might play out. So you can identify from the House bill a number of provisions that probably don't comply with the germaneness requirement uh, that they be budget related. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see once those objections are raised if someone does raise a point of order in the Senate, uh, what would happen then? Because you have people like Ted Cruz saying that the presiding officer of the Senate can make decisions on whether something complies with the Byrd rule or not. And the presiding officer receives advice from the Senate parliamentarian, who is Elizabeth McDonough, but doesn't have to uh, adhere to her advice. Uh, so I'm curious what you guys uh, what you guys think on the dynamics uh, if that were to happen. Well, but particularly as the presiding officer that uh, Paul and Cruz want, of course, is is Veep Pence. And to get him to preside and make all of the judgments, presumably with relatively little uh, input from the parliamentarian. I think one of one observation is that really that I don't think that the House made a particularly strong effort to craft a bill that would survive the bird rule. I mean, I think they were looking to get a bill out of the House more than to get a bill onto the president's desk. Ryan was trying to move it over to McConnell's desk rather than his. There's a great quote from um, uh, Representative Franks, who described trying to craft a bill to survive the bird rule as, quote, it's essentially like trying to force a giraffe through a keyhole. If you get the job done, he looks a little differently on the other side. <laughs> and I think you're right, Nathan. There's some, some, some pieces here that look in danger, unless kind of like the, the Supreme Court vote. Rules are suspended. Pence does preside and Paul and Cruz have their day. But if that doesn't happen, I think the MacArthur amendments look there look like they're non-starters. I agree with you. And also the penalty for failure to maintain continuous coverage, that seems to be in danger too, because that penalty is paid to insurance companies, not to the government. So it's very hard to see how it would fit within the bird rule. Yeah, I think it's an important point that when you look Look at the AHCA and how quickly it was passed, how the fact that there were no meaningful hearings and there was no CBO score, there wasn't a fraction of the attention paid to this as was paid to the Affordable Care Act in 2009. It just doesn't strike me as the result of careful policymaking or intentional policymaking in that Congress is trying to solve lingering problems with our healthcare financing system and the way we provide and pay for and regulate health care. Uh, it, it did strike me as soon as I, as soon as we saw the text, actually, after people voted on it, it struck me, I, I totally agree with you, Nick, that it struck me more as something they wanted to put a check mark next to and get off their plate and let the Senate deal with. But it, it is troubling and it's disturbing to hear people like Ted Cruz talking about, you know, ignoring or contravening the advice of the Senate parliamentarian. In that case, you're basically getting 
getting rid of the legislative filibuster. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it fits into a more general theme of the Trump presidency that we've been seeing in a lot of media and among law professors commenting now, which is that so much of the system in general seems to be held together by a lot of norms and norms seem to be being blown up uh, on an almost weekly or even daily basis. I disagree with you there. I think this has got relatively little to do with Trump. I think this is much more about the GOP and how they have acted over the last uh, 15 years, the changes in structure to that party and their basic uh, belief, I think, that the Democratic uh, members are shouldn't be there. The GOP takes the approach essentially that the, the Democrats uh, lack legitimacy and that uh, their agenda is the only one that matters. And so f- on this occasion, I, I would uh, I would not hurl the first rock at the White House, Frank. <laughs> no, I, I can see that point. I mean, I, and I'll I'll concede that point. I mean, I think that there certainly is a lot of you know if you if Trump were gone tomorrow, a relatively similar process you could see pursued by. By, by Pence or Ryan as president as well. But I guess one of the questions that then comes up in terms of the the bargaining here, and, and I know that this is really a three or four or five dimensional chess game, is how does the GOP keep the Senate together on this when there are so many different factions and there are folks from states that will just be devastated? When I think about Alaska, you know, and, and Lisa Murkowski, I mean, these states, given what could happen in terms of the way the, the, the subsidies are structured in the HCA. I just can't imagine these people being elected again, given the predictable constituent backlash um, that would have happened with the type of massive redistribution from folks now getting some forms of subsidy to their health care to the highest income earners in the country. I don't know. I mean, if that story is told in any way, I just don't see how it's politically viable, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I I, I think you're right. I It's it's hard to imagine. So if you look at the, the MacArthur amendments to the House bill and and what basically enticed the Freedom Caucus to get on board, those things went in the opposite direction that some of the moderate Senate Republicans would like to see in a Republican-led health reform bill. So particularly the Medicaid, block-granting Medicaid, and getting rid of uh, you know community rating, making it harder for people with pre-existing conditions. If you look at the comments of Murkowski from Alaska and Heller from Nevada and Capito from West Virginia, they all expressed uh, real concerns about undermining Medicaid. And so, you know, we have this, it's a, it's fascinating from a health policy perspective, but it's really, really troubling because what you saw in the House bill were, so I, I think the Senate's going to be much more uh, pragmatic and they have to be uh, about what, what, if anything, they pass. In the House bill, you saw a number of measures that they crammed in to the bill that reflect kind of this long Republican wish list of policies that have been largely debunked and studied and tried before. Um, so what's troubling to me about, about the policy proposals coming from uh, Republican policymakers is that we have experience with high-risk pools before. This 
isn't the first time we've tried them. Uh, we have experience with you know, non-community rated health insurance. We have experience with selling insurance, you know, state efforts to sell insurance across state lines. So it's not like these are policy exper- experiments going back to our, our earlier discussion that we genuinely don't know whether they're going to work or not. And we're trying our best in, in an honest way to solve real problems with our system. They're more of an ideological wish list of things they want to achieve without regard for the evidence showing that they don't work. So it's that dynamic, I hope, comes apart in the Senate where people like Murkowski and other moderate Republicans aren't going to stand for large chunks of their, their constituents losing coverage because of the pretty strident bill that came out of the House. In a, a Vox piece um, back in the, just as the HCA were, was first being put forward, Abby Gluck put it like this, Congress should be debating whether healthcare falls into the category of goods that individuals should either acquire on their own or go without. Instead, all of our modern political health debates are about changes on the margins. And I think that's accurate, but I don't think that overarching discussion, even with a little nudging uh, over the last week from what the CEO of Aetna said, maybe we should have a conversation about single payer or universal coverage. I'm not sure we are going to have that debate. So the question is, are there changes on the margins that can be good policy? Nick, I mean, the, the question, I suppose, and this gets to one of the ideas I just wanted to put on the table in terms of where we're going on a macro level here is it seems to me that the only way I can make sense of a lot of the the overarching picture of the AHCA in terms of radical reduction of purchasing power of individuals to buy health insurance is that there's a view that healthcare is too big a percentage of GDP and that if, for example, we take away a lot of money from the class of people that are like, you know, six-year-old quadriplegics that are being supported by uh, Medicaid or other, you know, programs that, you know, nevertheless, that doctors and hospitals will step up and do the right thing and uh, do that as pro bono or do that work for free. And that seems to be maybe the theory behind it or that, you know, the doctors and, and hospitals are taking just too much money from the economy and that, you know, they'll realize this and then, you know, just tone down or uh, how much uh, they're demanding uh, to provide care. And I mean, my concern is obviously that, you know, that won't happen and that, in fact, they'll find other ways to make money. And, you know, there's an old hypothesis in healthcare finance of uh, physician income maintenance. You know, you try to cut it, cut pay in one way, they'll find a way to uh, bring it back as Bob Smolt, you know, described in one of our shows recently. So I don't know, but I mean, I, I, I guess it could be seen as a sort of experiment. You know, the more you squeeze, can you manage to actually squeeze the size of the sector? Or are you going to see just a loss of care for lots of people and then more expensive care for others? Maybe that's what happens. I think I think that's an interesting idea that there's this notion that reducing purchasing power will have an effect on prices long term. Common sense suggests that they kind of get it backwards, but you know it's hard to say for sure because price inputs and price outputs are so obscure in healthcare. So it's it's hard to say. You know, and even more, you know, I hate to take this in, in, in even a more cynical direction, but a, an even more cynical take on it would be that health reform is just a means to an end. And the end is not improving the healthcare system.
system, the end is a major tax cut. Uh, so, you know, again, being incredibly cynical, you might just say, well, there's a lot of garbage in the AHCA and there are a lot of provisions that don't reflect what academics and people studying the healthcare system understand to work. Uh, but instead, the AHCA is a means for reducing, you know, this income distribution and, you know, trying to get through tax cuts to repeal the, the tax the, the taxes to help pay for the Affordable Care Act. Although I wonder if you were on the other side, whether a GOP spokesperson would accuse the ACA as being a distributional tool, that it was a means of of moving wealth from the productive, innovative, uh, investing parts of the economy uh, to those who didn't work as much. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that would actually be a fair characteriz- characterization. And I think if you if you look at health reform across different countries, there were there were a wave of health reform uh, efforts around the world in, in the, the late eighties, the early Early 90s, the mid 1990s. You know, a few dozen countries passed major health reforms. I think when you when you look at the ACA and the AHCA in light of those reforms, and you know, mostly Western democratized countries, um, what you what you appreciate is that every country has to figure out how to solve some common problems. How do we provide as much care as we can afford to as many people as possible for a reasonable price? And and inevitably, there will be a chunk of the population, even if you're in an extremely wealthy country, that can't afford health care. And inevitably, there are going to be populations who have chronic conditions, pre-existing conditions, expensive conditions. And this is not something you can leave to market mechanisms by themselves because pe- these people won't be able to afford the care they need. So health reform, when seen from a global perspective, is in many ways ways a redistribution from people who uh, have money and enjoy good health to people who don't have one or the other or either. Um, so I think the, the distributive part of health reform, you know, maybe the Republican proposals make sense if you view it in that lens. But one thing I have to object to here, and this is also, I think, a big macro point that the media is missing a bit, is a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of the GOP right now is rhetoric that is not just attacking the ACA, and I love your formulation, Nick, by the way, in terms of, you know, we've gone from an attack on Obamacare to one on LBJ care. And I think that's one that really also really needs to be picked up by the media. But it's not just an attack on the ACA or LBJ care. It strikes me as an attack on the very idea of transfers themselves. And it seems to me, for example, you know, when we hear Congress people saying, why should I as a man, I'm a 55 year old man, and I've already had kids. And why should I as a man, pay for a woman's maternity. You know, why am I paying for that? And this is rhetoric that we're hearing increasingly. And we're also hearing from Mick Mulvaney that diabetics, apparently the the representative diabetic in his mind is somebody that sits at home, eats a whole bunch of donuts and watches TV. And the question is, why should anyone have to care for or pay for this person? So this sort of logic is not just an attack on Medicare and Medicaid or, you know, God forbid, um, uh, the social democratic welfare states of Western 
Europe, their sort of healthcare systems, or the Taiwanese system, or something like that. It's not just an attack on the Heritage Foundation-inspired um, uh, neoliberal technocracy embodied in the Affordable Care Act. It's an attack on the idea of risk-spreading insurance itself, with the subtext that only the dumb, the 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 lazy, stupid people that aren't quite as good a shopper as they ought to be will be opting into these plans where they could let themselves be gouged by pregnant women and diabetics and all the others that aren't living up to their uh, obligations as citizens to be as healthy and apparently uh, childless as possible. So I, I just wanted to say that, you know, I, I think there's something more dangerous going on here. And I think there's something, I mean, certainly when I look at, and, and by the way, one last distributional point, if we combine the fact, a lot of people are saying, oh, the silver lining here is that we could end up with, you know, different Hawaii's or California's or that the blue states will get to have their single payer systems and the red states will go their own way. And then we that's a sort of uh, modus vivendi that we can all live with. The problem with that approach, though, is that one of the core aspects of the Trump tax plan that helps pay for the sort of incredible giveaway of the pass-through corporations is the getting rid of the deductibility of state and local taxes, right? Well, what does that do? That really makes it competitively unwise for any business or relatively wealthy people to live in states like California, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, etc. And so that in itself is a long-term time bomb that will blow up the efforts by states to take advantage of the flexibility that would be offered under the HCA. So I think when we look at it overall, there's two dangers here. One is that people are being lulled into a false sense of security that they'll, their state will be able to go its own way. And secondly, that it's not it's only an attack on government programs when in fact a lot of what it's setting into motion is an attack on the idea of insurance itself. I'd add to that, Frank, I think because I think the idea of insurance is part of the, the more normative sense of solidarity and that it is by attacking insurance in healthcare, it's attacking any moral sense of, of solidarity solidarity in society. I think that's right. And one of the things that I also think is a dangerous aspect of the Overton window moving as far as it has over the past uh, couple of months is you even see folks on the so-called liberal end of the spectrum, and I'll bring up Vox again, uh, because I have to say they do a lot of good coverage, but I also listen to the Ezra Klein show, and he was bringing up a proposal by Goldhill, of all people, in a conversation with this venture capitalist uh, named Gurley, about whose, whose model was exactly this sort of every tub on its own bottom, any healthcare spending you should get should just be allocated to you, and you get it at the beginning of your life, and when you run out, you run out. And this is very worrisome, you know, and I just sort of feel that the other thing that a lot of them folks are missing here, and this gets to our conversation with Gwian McKee, is they are not really understanding the macroeconomic effects of this type of radical privatization of healthcare spending to individuals. I don't know. But I mean, I think you're right, Nick. And uh, I think that's one of the very troubling aspects of this. Well, let's move us a little bit back to the process of the House bill, the giraffe through the keyhole. Let's assume that some things fall because of the bird rule and try and and sort of guess what we think might be coming out of the Senate. For a start, I guess, will anything come out of the Senate or are there so many competing, if slightly more sort of tolerant, responsible views there that it, it nothing may uh, result? 
Or um, do we think that there is something that will actually come out that sort of uh, is something towards uh, more the middle than we saw coming out of the House? I think I think whatever comes out of the Senate has to be more moderate than what came out of the House. It's hard to imagine anything approaching what came out of the House passing <laughs> the Senate. Um, and, you know, it's so difficult to predict. It's, you know, we're sitting here on May 17th. You know, I, I think the conversation could change dramatically based on what the CBO score says uh, in a few days. Um, who knows what kind of coalitions will generate momentum? Uh, you know, if you remember the ACA, the the House had a tri-committee bill and then the Senate had, you know, multiple different versions. So you would have expected more coordination on the Senate side, but it's it's really hard to see what's going to come through. If, you know, it can, perhaps you'll see some provisions that could make it through the reconciliation keyhole be moderated in some ways. You might have something, you know, the end result might be a bill that both sides can sell as either moderate or a dramatic deconstruction of Obamacare, depending on the audience they're talking to. It's just really hard to predict substantively what's going to come through, uh, especially with Medicaid. That seems to be a real flashpoint. How much do you, so, you know, kind of drawing the Medicaid reforms to the broader issues that we were just talking about, the distribution. You know, the old Medicaid system was basically designed for the quote-unquote deserving poor. And the ACA changed Medicaid into a genuine health insurance program for low-income populations without regard to these deserving poor uh, criteria. And so it's hard to imagine what could happen to Medicaid in the Senate, especially if, especially given early signals from people like Murkowski and Heller. So we're about to conclude for this show and I'm trying to think of a wrap-up question and part of it has to do with the political dynamics here and the sense of either inevitability or inevitability of a major move in health policy of how necessary that is and how necessary folks feel that is. And so I guess the question I'll ask, Nathan, and please feel free to transition it to any <laughs> closing point you want to make, is some commentators seem to believe that there is a sort of bolder or snowball dynamic to this legislation. It's got momentum, and no Republican wants to be blamed as the person who got in its way. And that essentially the moderates have proven time and again that while they'll raise some concerns they're not united enough like the Freedom Caucuses to really lay down the gauntlet and have non-negotiables, and that they're really not going to be the people that will get in the way of a bill, and that that gives enormous bargaining power to leadership and to the, the far right. And so what I'm wondering here is, does it seem as though that type of momentum is going to lead to major changes in health policy, and how long would it take for the effects of these changes to percolate down to affect people's real pocketbooks. And I guess the final question would be, do we think that those changes, which I assume would be negative, get interpreted as resulting from the potential Trump care? Or is it possible for the GOP to simply say, well, you know, Obamacare blew things up so badly, it's going to be bad for a decade, but at least we're trying to fix it. So uh, that's uh, that's where I, where I think it's going, but I'd love your thoughts on that scenario, Nathan. I, I agree with your sentiments that the more 
extreme Republican senators probably hold more power than we think. We think the moderates sit in the middle as kind of this fulcrum. But yeah, I, I agree that at a certain point, they don't want to be the one stepping stone that Republicans, you know, you don't want to be the one roadblock in the way for Republicans to finally say that they've repealed and replaced the Affordable Care Act. You know, I think things can happen pretty quickly in terms of if a bill passes, you know, one thing the MacArthur amendments did was moved up the tax repeals from 2018 to 2017 to appease the Freedom Caucus people. So, you know, I think the worst case scenario for progressives in the Senate uh, and moderates in the Senate is that a moderate, you know, look what happened in the House. Tom MacArthur is, you know, part of the more moderate Tuesday group and his amendments were responsible for getting the Freedom Caucus on board. And so could that happen in the Senate where a more moderate member took control and tried to try to bridge the gap and ended up basically conceding, uh, conceding significant territory to the to the more uh, strident conservative wing that really wants to gut the Affordable Care Act, regardless of the of the fallout. And on that uplifting note, that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Professor Cortez. Nathan, it was so great for you to join us. You are, of course, at Nathan Cortez on Twitter. Don't let it be another 87 shows till you're back. <laughs> no, it was great to be here. You guys are two of my favorite people, and I'm, I'm always happy to do the show. Well, we post our show notes at twill.com. I don't know how many notes there will be this day, <laughs> this episode, Frank. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? Please check me out at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.